0: Over the past several weeks, we have been uh, living in the story of Genesis, and particularly the story of God as he's been working in and through Joseph and his family. And as I was uh, outlining the, the, the series way back in May, I got to these chapters 42, 43, 44 of Genesis, and no matter how I was working through it, I just couldn't bring myself to break it up into like little sermonettes. It's, you, you, it would do an injustice to the narrative. It's just such a beautiful crescendo of of reconciliation and And high drama. I mean, this is really good drama right here. So uh, what we're going to do is a dramatic reading. And I pitched this idea to Elizabeth Holland a couple months ago. Uh, She has a background in drama, has directed a few plays. And so she created a script uh, out of these four verses and has has a a whole team of people that are going to be working in this drama to present the word to us in a little different vehicle than normal. So let me pray over our time together, and then we will get started. Oh, living God, Um, thank you, thank you, thank you for um, giving us a record of your action in history and in real people's lives. And thank you for giving it to us in a package like Genesis, Uh, an amazing story. Thank you that you didn't give us a PowerPoint or some bullet points or something or a theological treatise, but you give us an amazing story. A real story, a story of real people with real issues. I'm thankful for your faithfulness and your providence and uh, for getting to see you at work in this amazing story. Lord, I pray that you would use the the preparations, uh, the hours that went into this for people. Uh, Use this drama, as it really is, uh, to penetrate deep into our hearts and our minds. Reveal Yourself to us, Lord. We are desperate uh, to encounter You afresh this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when Joseph was 17, of course, he had this amazing dream he got from God. He had two dreams, and they both meant the same thing. Basically, Joseph, one day would rule over all of his older brothers and all of his family. Now, he was the favorite son of Jacob. And his brothers didn't like him before the dream. After the dream, they hated him. And they plotted his death... And they were planning to kill him until uh, one of the brothers uh, intervened. And what they ended up doing with little brother Joseph in his fancy coat and his big dreams was selling him to slave traders. Joseph was sold by his flesh and blood uh, to an Egyptian man named Potiphar who was the captain of the bodyguard of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt himself. Through a matter of circumstances, Joseph then is taken from slavery and put into prison. And he's there for years, until finally Pharaoh has a dream that he can't interpret. Joseph rises, interprets the dream, and, oh, you can't even make this stuff up, rises to be second in command of all of Egypt, one of the most powerful nations in the world at that time. And what happened was there was a great season of abundance followed by a great season of famine. And Joseph was given wisdom by God to know how to handle that situation. So that in the time of great famine, when everyone else was starving, because of God's wisdom given to Joseph, Egypt was positioned now to be the one who had grain and food for the rest of the known world. People began to run out of food. And the only place they could turn was Egypt.
1: So when Jacob heard that there was grain available in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you standing around
2: looking at one another? I've heard there is was grain in Egypt. Go down and buy some for us before we all starve to death.
1: So Joseph's went down to Egypt to buy grain. Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with them, however, for fear some harm might come to him. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt, along with others, to buy food, for the famine had reached Canaan as well. Since Joseph was the governor of all Egypt and in charge of the sale of grain, it was to him that the brothers came. They bowed low before him, with their faces to the ground, Joseph recognized them instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger.
2: Where are you from? He
1: demanded roughly. From the land of Canaan, they replied.
2: We have come to buy grain.
1: Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him, but Joseph recognized them, and he remembered the dreams that he had had many years before. He said to them,
2: You are spies. You've come to see how vulnerable our land has become. No, my lord,
1: he exclaimed.
3: We have come to buy food. We are all brothers and honest men, sir. We are not spies.
2: Sir. Yes, you are. He
1: insisted.
2: You have come to discover how vulnerable the family has made our land.
1: They said,
3: Sir, there are twelve of us brothers, and our father is in the land of pain. Our youngest brother is there with our father, and one of our brothers is no longer with us.
1: But Joseph insisted.
2: As I said, you are spies. This is how I will test your story. I swear by the life of Pharaoh that you will not leave Egypt unless your younger brother comes here. One of you go and get your brother? I'll keep the rest of you here batted in prison. Then we'll find out whether or not your story is true. If it turns out that you don't have a younger brother,
1: he put them all in prison for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them...
0: Wait for it. On the third day? Do you remember what happened just a chapter or two ago when someone was in prison for three days? Actually, two people. A baker and a cup, the chief cupbearer. In three days, they were released from prison too, weren't they? But something different happened to each one. The cupbearer had his head raised up, his position restored by Pharaoh. But in three days, the baker had his his head lifted off in execution. Isn't this brilliant? I mean, what a narrative, right? I just am going crazy as a literary guy, but like you're supposed to be saying, what is going to happen in three days? Will they be lifted up or will their heads be lifted off by Pharaoh? On the third day, "'Joseph said to them, "'What would you do if you were Joseph? "'Here before you are obviously the ones "'who have put you through so much pain, "'sold you to strangers as a slave, "'your own flesh and blood. "'They don't recognize you. "'And what a turn of events now, second in command with a word. "'You could have their heads with a word.'" you could restore them. Oh, the irony! 23 long, hard years. 23 years of feeling forgotten. And now, out of the blue, how the tables have turned. What would you do? Whether you realize it or not, you do have the power in your life, in your circumstances, to with a word bring life to the people in your lives, or with a word to bring death, breaking people down one word at a time. Every conversation you have is an opportunity. Let's hear what Joseph does.
1: They didn't know that Joseph understood them as he was standing there, for he'd been speaking to them through an interpreter. Now he left the room and found a place where he could weep. Returning, he talked some more with them. Then he chose Simeon from among them and had him tied up right before their eyes. Joseph then ordered his servants to fill the men's sacks with grain, but he also gave secret instructions to return each brother's payment. At the top of the sack. He also gave them provisions for the journey, so they loaded up their donkeys with the grain and started for home. But you know what? When they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get some grain to feed the donkeys. And what did he find in his sack? He found some money. He exclaimed to my brother,
3: to his brothers. <laughs> here in the sack.
1: They were filled with terror and said to each other, "What has God done to
0: us?" What has God done to us? Have you ever found money in your pocket in the laundry and said, "What has God done to me?" Is that your reaction? In our story, in all of these chapters in this section of Genesis, Joseph has been the focus. He's the one who was sold and imprisoned. He's the one held captive in a foreign land. But all of a sudden, as I'm reading this and hearing and seeing it come to life before my eyes, I realize Joseph isn't the only prisoner in this story. And throughout this story, we encounter revealing comments by the brothers. They are sons of Jacob, bearers of the covenant of God, and yet they don't trust their God. When they find money in their sacks, they don't assume it's a blessing from God. They assume it's punishment. Why would that be? I believe it's because they have been imprisoned by their guilt this whole time. They sold their own flesh and blood to slave traders. They let their father believe his beloved son was dead all these years. They have been living in a perpetual prison of their own for 30 years. Uh, years, or 23 years. When we lived with unresolved guilt, it absolutely affects the way we see the world. It will affect the way you see God, you conceive of God. It prevents you from enjoying life because deep down you believe the only thing you really deserve is punishment. When you encounter good circumstances in your life, think of something nice that's happened to you unexpectedly. Do you receive those types of things with joy? Or do you sometimes think in the deep recesses of your mind, I wonder when the shoe's going to drop? Do you primarily experience God as a good and loving Father who loves you without fail? Or are you constantly wondering, am I really even capable of being loved? Guilt is a nagging little grace, and I did say that correctly, it's a nagging little grace that can lead us to confront our past, to confront our Father, and find that He is just waiting for us to come home, so He can extend grace and mercy.
1: So they came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened. told him Out their sacks. There, at the top of each one, was the bag of money they had paid for the grain. Terror gripped them, as it did their father Jacob. He exclaimed,
2: "Oh, you have deprived me of my children! Joseph has disappeared. Simeon is gone, and now you want to take Benjamin too. Everything is going against me."
1: Then Reuben said to his father. But Jacob replied,
2: My son will not go down with you, for his brother Joseph is dead, and he alone is left of his mother and children. If anything should happen to him, you would bring
1: my great head down to the grave in deep sorrow. But there was no relief from the terrible famine throughout the land. When the grain they had brought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, But Judah said, Jacob moaned. But the man specifically asked us about our family. They replied. We wanted to know whether our father was still living.
2: And he asked us if we had another brother to hold him. How would you have known who to say, bring me your brother?
1: Judah said to his father. So their father Jacob finally said to them, they took Benjamin and the gifts and doubled the money and hurried to Egypt, where they presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw that Benjamin was with them, he said to the manager of his household,
2: These men will eat with me at noon. Take them inside and prepare a big feast.
1: So the man did as he was told and took them to Joseph's palace. They were badly frightened when they saw way they were being taken. They said, As the brothers arrived at the entrance to the palace, they went over to the man in charge of Joseph's household. They said to him,
3: Sir, after our first trip to Egypt to buy food as we were returning home, we stopped
1: The household manager told them.
2: Your God, the God of your ancestors, must have put it there. We collected all of your money the first
0: time. Well, again, the brothers seem to have a skewed view of God. Concerned about their donkeys, really? Um, We have no idea how the money got in our sacks. The family of the covenant doesn't even see the hand of God in their lives at this point. Their blindness to everything that's going on is starkly contrasted by the words of Joseph's pagan steward. He says, relax, don't worry about it. Literally in Hebrew, he says, shalom Lacha, shalom among the people of God. How is it that this pagan Egyptian is the one speaking shalom over the the covenant family. He says, your God, the God of your ancestors must have put it there. I had your money the whole time. What faith? What faith? His faith trumps the faith of the family that has received the covenant promise for generations and generations. How is this Egyptian slave pointing the family of God's covenant to the activity of God in their lives? The only thing I can come up with is it must be Joseph. It has to be Joseph. What a witness Joseph must have been within his household. We know know that Joseph attributed his wisdom and his ability to interpret dreams to God's activity in his life. We know that his sons, born to his Egyptian wife, were still named Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. Names that show Joseph is still hopeful in the promise of God. How amazing that the Egyptian slave not only picked up upon Joseph's religion, but also caught the vision of that family of God. Your God, the God of your ancestors, must have put it there. It makes me wonder about my life and about yours. Would the pre-Christians in our life be able to point... Uh, to Jesus for the good things that go on in our lives? Would they have any clue that Jesus is our Lord, is the bearer of all good things? I think it's a question for each of us to ponder. After all, Jesus calls you and I salt of the earth and light of the world.
1: Then the man released Simeon and brought him out to them. The brothers were then led into the palace and given water to wash their feet and food for their donkeys. They were told they would be eating there, so they prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon. When Joseph came, they gave him their gifts and bowed low before him. He asked them how they had been getting along, and they said, And then he said,
2: How is your father, the old man that you spoke to me about, is he still alive?
1: Yes, they replied. He is alive and well. Then they bowed again before him. Looking at his brother Benjamin, Joseph asked,
2: Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? May God be gracious to you, son.
1: Then Joseph made a hasty exit because he was overcome with emotion for his brother and wanted to cry. Going into his private room, he wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, keeping himself under control. He ordered, keeping himself under control. Bring on the food. He ordered. Joseph ate by himself, and his brothers were served at a separate table. The Egyptians sat at their own table because Egyptians despise Hebrews and refused to eat with them. But Joseph told each of his brothers where to sit, and to their amazement, he seated them in order of their ages, from oldest to youngest. Their food was served to them from Joseph's own table. He gave the largest serving to Benjamin five times as much as to any of the others. So they all feasted and drank freely with him. When his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to the man in charge of his household.
2: Fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry, and put each man's money back in his sack. Then put my personal silver cup the top of the youngest brother sat, along with his grandmother.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the household manager did as he was told. The brothers were up at dawn and set out on their journey with their loaded donkeys. They didn't forget their packs. <laughs> His household manager?
2: She's after him and stop them and asked him, Why have you repaid my act of kindness with such evil? What do you mean by stealing my master's personal silver written cup, which he uses to predict the future? What wicked thing have you done?
1: So the man caught up with them and said to them in the way he'd instructed.
3: What are you talking
1: about? The brothers responded.
2: <laughs> what kind of people do you think we are? Do you accuse us of such a terrible thing.
1: man replied. They quickly took their sacks from the backs of their donkeys and opened them. Joseph's servant began searching from the oldest to the youngest, going all the way down the line. The cup was found, not in the oldest brother's sack, not in the second oldest brother's sack, in the youngest, in Benjamin's sack.
0: At this they were
1: their clothing in despair. They loaded the donkeys again and returned to the city. <laughs> Joseph was still at home when Judah and his brothers arrived, and they fell to the ground before him. What were
2: you trying to do? Joseph demanded. Uh, didn't you know that such a man as I would go and it?
1: And Judah said, Oh my.
2: The rest of you may go home to your father,
1: Joseph said. Then Judah stepped forward and said,
3: My Lord, let me say this one word to you. Be patient with me for a moment, for I know that you could have me killed in an instant as though you were Pharaoh himself. You asked us, my Lord, if we had a father or a brother. He said, Yes. But we said to you, My Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for his father would die. But you told us, You may not see me again, unless your younger brother is with you. So we returned to our father, and told him what he had said. And when he said, Go back again and buy us a little food, we replied, We can't, unless you let our youngest brother go with us. We won't be allowed to see the man in charge of the grain, unless our younger brother is Then my father said to us, You know that my wife had two sons, and that one of them went away and never returned, doubtless torn to pieces by some wild animal. I have never seen him since. If you take away his brother from me, too, any harm comes to him, you would bring my brave head down to the grave in deep sorrow. And now, my lord, I cannot go.
0: if you've been following this whole saga for the last few chapters over the weeks, isn't it absolutely heart-wrenching to see how Judah is now so concerned with his father? He has such compassion for his father. Remember, Judah is the same guy who depraved his father by coming up with the idea of selling Joseph in the first place. Then, after that event, after his father's loss of his favorite son, Joseph... Moves away to Canaan and marries a Canaanite woman and starts a family in a foreign land. It must have broken his heart, his father's heart all over again. A lot can happen in 23 years. In 23 years, Judah had lost two of his own three sons. He was terrified of losing his third son, his youngest. He could identify with Jacob's pain. Judah was publicly humiliated by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Instead of responding like a politician with cover-ups and lies and excuses, Judah confessed and repented in public. By the time we see him now, 23 years later, Judah is a changed man. He now emerges as one of the heroes of the story. Consider the difference between Judah and his older brother, Reuben. Reuben offers his sons if anything should happen to Judah. Boy, what a hero, right? Uh, (laughs) But Judah is more than just a changed man. He is the future leader of this family. Judah offers his own life. Judah, in this story, foreshadows the gospel of Jesus. Through Judah, of course, would come Jesse and David And Jesus, and like Judah, Jesus would not only offer to give his life, he would actually give it. He would actually die, so that all of us who believe in him might have life. Jesus, our older brother, gave his life as surety, as payment, as security, as ransom, as atonement for us, his brothers and his sisters. Because of what Jesus has done, because he died because he rose, you and I have no reason to fear. And I want to just leave us uh, with something that I have been wrestling with in the story and just ask a question for you to ponder. Are you imprisoned this evening by guilt? Because I want to encourage you to leave it at the feet of Jesus. You are are forgiven when you repent before Jesus. You are set free. The prison door is actually already open. Sometimes it's so dark, you can't see, you can't believe. Jesus has unlocked the gate. His arms are wide open and he says, walk to me, walk right through the prison door of your guilt. Find the light of life. For some of us, it's not maybe some some guilt of something we've done. Some of us are imprisoned by holding a grudge against what someone else has done. Your inability to take those steps of forgiveness uh, makes you feel shackled to a life of survival rather than a life of abundance and really living. In the same way Jesus bids you come, lay that at the foot of his cross, be reconciled. Be part of the community. Join the family of God where we are made brothers and sisters, not because of genetics, not because we have lots of things in common or similar circumstances, but because of Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Father, it's amazing how you orchestrate, how you work through people, how you work through the most insane of circumstances. And you bring uh, this, this covenant family to reconciliation. Lord, I'm thankful that this is not really just a story about one guy and one set of brothers and one father. But this is a type, a, a, a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. And Jesus, I'm so thankful we didn't get to live on this side of your cross because we were anything special. What a grace it is to be on this side of the story, knowing that you have already offered yourself on our behalf, that you've already risen from the grave, that you are now standing with your arms open saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, laden with with guilt, with shame, struggling to forgive. Lord, we, I pray, I pray for your grace in helping us to come to you. Help us, Lord, to really trust and believe that you are the Lord who makes all things new. Amen.